Welcome to episode 26 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Hey folks, excited to welcome back Janet Cleese to the podcast uh, for round two. Janet has been involved in the lives of people with disabilities, families, and their allies for over 30 years. And Janet uh, joined us on episode 22, uh, along with other members of the Diohago Family Support Network, to uh, talk about the learnings that they've had um, in building community, in housing, in building a good life. Uh, for people with disabilities. And uh, today on the podcast, Janet and I discuss building relationships. And Janet has a has great framework uh, and model uh, called BCR, or building the context for relationships. So creating the right environments that give people an opportunity to develop natural relationships. So uh, super fascinating. Uh, love this topic, love this content, and I think you're really going to get a lot out of it. Janet also is the executive director for the Durham Association for Family Respite Services, and Janet uh, starts off by telling us a little bit um, about uh, Baffers, and she tells us you know, why they're, why they're different, the approach that they take, and the support that they're providing to families, um, and we also get into talking about biomedical methods and support and research, which is uh, seems like it's fairly new, but also seems to me like it's a little bit of common sense, but uh, super interesting topic, and we'll give you a, a bit of an overview and a taste and some exposure to that. Um, and uh, a couple of resources where you can start to look into that further. So here's Janet. Hey, Janet. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Great. Well, thanks for coming over, and um, I'm looking forward to a good conversation. Yeah, excellent. Me too. So um, we've got Janet Cleese uh, on the podcast today, uh, the Executive Director of Durham Association for Family and Respite Services. So, Janet, I would love maybe if you could just talk to our audience a little bit about um, what you do and some of the methodologies that um, that you really um, stand behind and, and teach families. Sure. Um, so the Durham Association for Family Respite Services is about to go through a name change. We've uh, just going through the legal process and we will soon be officially um, the Durham Association for Family Resources and Support. Um, and that's just much more accurate description of who we are. We are a family support and resource or organization. And we really do uh, partner with families to help their family member to have a good life in community. Um, and what that means is we don't offer um, typical uh, programs or services that do things for people. We don't um, invite people to a day program and support them in the daytime that way. We don't um, offer group living or even apartment living as an option that we provide to families. Rather, we talk to families about what's important to them and help them create that one fa- one person at a time. 
And so we really are always looking to partner with families who want to be actively engaged in the lives of their sons and daughters. Um, and I have to say that for some families, that's a little bit of a process. They come because they hear something that's intriguing. We're doing something interesting about housing or we are doing something interesting about using people's passport dollars. And what they really are thinking when they first arrive is, you know, can I pay you to do that for me? And the answer would be no. But what is it you have in mind? What's important? And what supports do you need to be able to get that thing done or to pull that off? And so often families realize that even though uh, we aren't going to do something for them, that they are very happy to kind of be at the steering wheel and take uh, the control and develop the lifestyle um, arrangements, um, as long as there's an organization that can give them some very, very practical supports along the way. So that's what we try to do. This organization has been around for about 35 years, and it was a family-to-family respite organization in the very beginning. And then over time, it really started to think about what would be even better for people than respite is having a good life where uh, people naturally have the breaks from one one another that that we all need, right? And that has just moved us into that means we need to be involved in full life planning for and with uh, people and their families um, in order for, um, you know, all family members to have a good rich life. And part of that would might well be breaks from one another. And part of that would be, you know, being very involved in living and being a part of one's community. So, I mean, that's kind of like a big, broad kind of statement and how we do all that. Um, I can speak especially to the last three years that I've been involved, although much longer than I, this organization has been involved in facilitation and planning with families and always from um, an SRV or a social role valorization perspective. And I can talk about that for in a moment. Um well, I'd just like to say, so what we really talk about is who are we for families and what is our at our table really to nourish families in this journey around providing good life opportunities for and with their sons and daughters with disabilities. And so we have a range of things that we have been told by families is helpful to them on this journey. So uh, uh, at the core, we offer um, facilitation and planning. So uh, people can sit with a facilitator that they get to know over time. It's not time limited at all. It uh, We've had relationships with some families for 15, 20 years and more. Um, so it's not time limited. We sit with people to imagine what is a good life and how might uh, that come about. So um, the end of our, uh, our support there is not just a good plan for somebody, but how are we going to implement that plan? And from a family perspective, I think I've learned over the years, you know, the big written fancy plan is one thing. I sometimes call that a still life plan. Uh, but there's the real evolving a plan that all uh, people actually work with in their real life. Where am I going to start? What makes the most sense? What's the most pressing thing that I want to change right now? And that's what we work away with people on. Mm-hmm. And what I love about how you're operating is um, you're not just telling families, yep, yeah, I'll do that for you. It's this, we operate with families by partnering with you yeah. to help you on your or support you on your journey. Um, we'll help you kind of figure out the path and we'll help you to, um, to do the work, but we're not just going to do the work. 
yeah. for you. Yeah. And uh, that sometimes sounds a little bit daunting, but we say, you know, we you will have this relationship established with a facilitator. And then we have a range of other things that families have said are important to help them feel less overwhelmed and um, more capable. And so we also can help people um, recruit good support people. So we uh, host a respiteservices.com website, but we've enhanced that. We have a very, very um, uh, um, good program. Um, so we recruit all kinds of people. And even before they can sign up on the website and kind of say that they're available to provide some supports uh, for people, uh, they have to uh, run through a one-day training with us. They have three references checks, and they have a face-to-face -face interview with us just to make sure that uh, they are within the kind of um, uh, style that we're looking for for support for families. So when they go on our website, at least we understand what we're offering to families. And families have said that's very, very helpful. Some of the facilitators will also help with enhanced um, recruitment when it's necessary or or in a pinch. Uh, we help uh, with um, human resources kinds of advice. We uh, help families look at a variety of contracts that are helpful. It's very clear to us that families are uh, making the final choices. They're doing the interviews. They're selecting the people. They're guiding the people. They're uh, making sure people are paid and whatnot. Uh, but if we can give them uh, forms and templates and things that have all of the legalities worked out for them, that, that just makes their um, work a whole lot less. Mm -hmm. We uh, offer a number of uh, learning events, both for family members and for support people, sometimes in tandem and sometimes um, separately. And uh, that means that families know that they can um, send um, supporters to us to kind of enhance their training and their skills. And they can come together as well, so they um, kind of learn more and more um, about this journey. Uh, we have lots of opportunities. We believe deeply in family-to-family -family learning. We think that families learn and grow uh, together really, really well. So some families might join um, a, a steady group with the same small group of families and move along as a family group, kind of planning and thinking together and supporting one another. Um, other people can join a group based on a theme. We have a housing group. We have another group that just looks at um, what we call biomedical approaches, like non-behavior, non-medication um, approaches to uh, how people are feeling about their lives and how they're reacting to life. And, and that's an ad hoc group that people can come and go uh, from. And so we just create the opportunities for people to kind of come together and um, work away at the things that they think are important. And the families continually tell us that the family group kind of orientation is very, very helpful to them. We have, we host, um, a, a partnership with uh, Durham Family Network, which is the oldest running family network in the province. And, um, they're a, they're a little bit at arm's length from us. So families can see them without kind of going through the DSO without, um, uh, you know, any kind of prior understanding of whether they fit or not. As long as they're a family with an issue, they can speak with the right. DFM. No strings attached. That's right. right. Yeah. And I do have to say with the rest of our, our services, uh, you know, for the most part, um, although it's uh, uh, it's hard to kind of uh, get regular facilitation, uh, we help all kinds of people as they come in. They don't need to be registered in any way if they want to attend a learning event or find out about um, something else. We just seem to have an open door about that. And about 300 families involved in one way or another um, mm. at any time. Yeah, that's amazing. And my family has, you know, taken uh, that opportunity to get engaged yeah. as well. And um, 
we'll talk a little bit about the workshop or yeah. the content from that that workshop that um, my sister, myself, and uh, her support worker um, attended. Yeah. Um, and you came fantastic. in from out of region, and we have a number of people coming in from out of region for a number of, of things. We're kind of the Durham Association, but we're not closed to other people. And we would love for this kind of support to be available in other regions. And in, in some other places, there's something like this, but many areas there's not. So we just kind of say to people, if you can get to us, yeah. <laughs> kind of come on in. But I do want to, there's a few other things that we offer that I think are really, really helpful. One is uh, we offer help with uh, brokering and financial supports, um, budget supports in, in various ways. And so we just understand that different families have different comfort levels with managing the money, paying supporters and whatnot. And we flow um, money for um, almost 200 families in one way or the other. And uh, we might do that by uh, holding the money for, for families and giving them every month one twelfth of their money. We might do that by holding the money for them and the families sign off on invoices provided by their workers, send them to us. And on behalf of the families, um, we, we pay them. So we hold the money. So often families say, I'm not, I, I really don't want a bank account with 10,000 or 15,000 or more dollars there to manage. Um, and we have no problem with that. Mm -hmm. So it's very flexible, supportive arrangements that are non-intrusive. And yet at no time do we think that we're the employers or the employers of record. We're simply doing it through signed agreement on behalf of families. So, right. so, so you're, you're acting kind of as like the banker yeah. or the accountant. That's right. But they're always in the driver's seat. They're telling us how much to pay, when to pay, who to pay, what to pay for. Uh, those aren't those our decisions. Those are the family's decisions. So how do you, it's the question we ask, how do we make sure that families have all of the control with the least amount of work? Because if they're going to spend their time and energy, I would rather they spend it on the planning and the implementation of those plans rather than juggling bank accounts and payrolls and things like that. Right. Yeah, I, I love that. And you're addressing some of the big headaches mm -hmm. that families have, right? Hiring support workers, um, managing the finances, and you're educating them yeah. on effective, proven models um, that work. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, or that's what we're aiming to do. Right. We're uh, really uh, kind of improving over the years our ability to communicate with families with all of the kind of options that everyone has access to now working better and better for us. We have a very good um, monthly newsletter that again goes out to people really all over the province. Uh, if people want to know, you know, there's a lot about us and what we're doing, but also good resources that are available to anyone, websites, um, uh, kind of uplifting stories, that kind of thing. So our family focused newsletter is, uh, goes out to a lot of people. Um, and then we have a fairly new website, which we have many more plans for, but at least it's um, basically a source of kind of information and, and thinking. And through our housing project, we now have a, um, a housing website, which is imagininghome.ca. Um, so there's lots of places that people can get to know about it as, as well. And really, I think the last area that I wanted just to touch on is that um, we do have um, what we call practical and timely projects. And that is um, through some of our fundraising efforts, um, 
when we do have money um, available, I really like to think that we can put them into projects that are meaningful for families. So we do these short-term projects that turn into longer term if they're effective, but they're easy to cut off if they don't kind of meet what we wanted them to do. So right now, for example, we're running one project which is called interest-based recruitment. And separate from our general recruitment for supporters, this is simply uh, doing some low-level recruitment based on what people are interested in. So we'd look for people who are interested in the environment or who are interested in dogs or hockey. We recruit non-qualified people um, just to meet the uh, person, get to know them, and bridge them into that community of interest. So that's a little project that's been running a little over a year, really, really um, impactful um, in people's lives. Awesome. And that ties into helping people to build relationships around their interests, which we're going to talk a little bit more about. Um, But I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And so what might well happen is that um, people will in their uh, facilitation and planning kind of get a a sense of who the person is and what they're interested in. And then we want people to kind of, how do you enter into the world of music or how do you enter into the world of art? And sometimes a paid support person whose kind of identity is support person isn't the best person to do that. And we found that sometimes if you can find a musician or an artist um, and you know, they have a, a tiny paid role, but they have this idea that that what they could do is invite the person to the places that they're entirely comfortable at. Um, good things can happen. So mm-hmm. that project, I mean, I still think it's in development. It's a, it's uh, about a year, a year and a half in, but uh, we're continuing with that one. We have another one around mindfulness that is giving us beautiful results. And that was uh, we started with the very youngest families. We found some very, very distressed families. And it was around a number of things, including um, some of the impacts of uh, their sons and daughters uh, with disability. And uh, while things were going, getting sorted out, we were just trying to think, how can we be helpful to this family? How can we calm things down and keep things together? And we had done some work and learning with uh, Peter Marks and... Um, his approaches around conscious care and support and um, thought if we could bring a mindful practitioner right into the family home for a few sessions, maybe we could um, be helpful to a family while they sort out other um, interventions or treatments or ideas or whatever. And it's been very, very effective. So uh, a mindful practitioner, a, a, a beautiful young woman uh, goes into the family home at you know, they give permission for that and teaches the whole family how to breathe and how to kind of be in the moment and kind of put the stresses aside for the moment. And it has given people immense capacity to kind of continue on the journey. Um, she now goes into the homes of families with older sons and daughters as well, and sometimes siblings, and um, has done some just really, really good solid work. And again, the feedback from the families is what I'm looking to. Is this helpful to you? And and families are saying, absolutely. And and often it's a short-term thing, you know, um, two or three months or so, sometimes bi-weekly, you know, every other week visit, sometimes weekly. And so the idea isn't this isn't forever, but how do we give people, families, some skills um, to kind of be in the moment while they go through a rough patch? Mm-hmm. So um, One of the things that um, I really appreciate, appreciate about the approach that you're taking is it's you're operating as um, really a very entrepreneurial, um, I'll call it organization. Yeah. Um, you're taking, you know, the funds or the resources that you have 
testing. You know, we think this is we, we think this is what the problem is. Mm-hmm. We think this is a solution that's going to solve the problem. Let's test it. And then let's get feedback from the family. How is this working? You know, what could we iterate? Yeah. You know, and and moving forward. And, yeah. And then investing your your dollars and your resources into into what's working and what's providing the outcomes that are making a difference. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I love the approach. That you're taking. Yeah, and and to give you an example of where we go from that, a third project which we originally got some uh, ministry funding for was uh, a family to family learning series called "Making the Most of Your Passport Dollars," and that was the call into families a way to to bring them on board and and so this is a six session um, uh, family to family learning series that takes place over 12 weeks so they meet every other week and then have a week to digest share their information try something and come back again and it's been just an amazing series around helping families with the very basics of kind of interest based role based srv based planning um although we don't call it any of those things we just say how you know what makes sense is to think about a vision and this is how planning works and here's a little strategy to help you um bring roles, relationships, and places of belonging into your sons or daughters' lives. And here's some thinking about the power of a positive introduction. And here's some thinking about um, the role of the supporter. And then if you wrap it all together, you know, where will this be- best happen, right? So it's a little series. It uh, We actually have done pre and post interviews, follow-up interviews, looked at the changes in attitudes and actions over time. And it is extremely powerful. When the ministry funding end, ended, we used some of this practical and timely project funds to end it, to fund it for a little bit longer. And now we found a way, at least for the short term, to incorporate it into our budget. So, um, you know, we, I, I just think that's one of the things we've paid a lot of attention to in the last uh, three or four years is uh, what makes a difference, not just anecdotally, like we're, we're the sector of the great story, right? But uh, what lies behind there? You know, how many great stories? Was it one great story that came out of that and that was an accident? Or was it because of something we did that the great stories are appearing? And those are our everyday mm-hmm. questions around the yeah. evaluation. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so for our listeners that are listening to this podcast, there's a lot of information and things that we're <laughs> no, talking about. No. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to include um, a link to the monthly newsletter, yeah. link to the um, website, and a link to the housing website to make sure that um, you can access the resources that uh, that Janet's mentioned. And um, I, if you're in the uh, Durham region, Toronto area, if you're within a couple hours drive, um, I strongly, if there's any of these workshops um, that Janet's mentioned that you're interested in, I strongly recommend that you come and check one out. Um, those, the, the workshops that you run, Janet, are they listed on your website? Yeah, they're on the website and they'll be in the newsletter all of the time. Okay. So, okay. Be good. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, the, the last, the, the other thing I wanted to say, and I haven't gotten around to it yet, is all of what I've talked about is offered within a very thoughtful, principled framework. And so it's not that we're everything for every family. We're very, very clear that we're interested in finding families who want to have family-led, family-managed um uh, resources and supports and lifestyles and where uh, people are in the community for, first, where they're a part of their community first. So it's not a matter of uh, 
you know, we're not looking for um, increasing the number of people in um, day programs or moving on to workshops, uh, or moving on to uh, group homes, for example. Uh, if people want those kinds of things, those kinds of services, there's lots of other agencies who will just do fine by them. We're looking for people who are interested in, you know, continuing to be in the driver's seat alongside their son and daughter, uh, looking at a very typical lifestyle that's anchored in community. And we always look at things one person at a time. So we never, ever group people with disabilities together. And uh, that's a part of our um anchoring in um, social role valorization. And that is a, a, a theory and a framework that really embraces all of what we do. Uh, at least um, twice a year, we have a one-day workshop in social role valorization. So I would encourage listeners, if you see that one, uh, sign up. Um, and it's a powerful framework that really um, says that human beings by nature are very judgmental um beings and we look at each other and we make quick judgments about whether you are kind of like me and knowable and like likable and familiar and therefore you know I want good things for you or whether you know upon meeting you you seem weird and different and unknowable and I draw away and it doesn't really matter to me as much and it, we just seem to have this in our brains that we can't embrace any everything and we we make these uh, distinctions and social role valorization uh, just is a theory that helps us to see, well, we can take this human tendency and we can use it to the good and we can help um, neighbors and community members and extended family members, not just to see that this is a person with a disability, but to understand that this person is a Blue Jays fan. This person is a contributor to their church. This person is a great neighbor who takes care of the dog down the street, right? And when we do that, we're inviting other people to see the common space that the two people share. And so it's not that the person doesn't have a disability and the disability may bring other qualities to their life for sure. But we try to point out what's familiar to people, what's familiar and what common ground might they share. And for that reason, we don't group people together. If you bring together two or three people with a disability in the middle of an art gallery, in the middle of a grocery store, in the middle of city hall, other people around will see the disability first and won't see that one person is that Blue Jays fan, another is a contributing church member, and they will think they have nothing in common with them, nothing to do with them, and that they aren't a part of their lives. And so we just break down those barriers by understanding what are people interested in and building roles that will identify much more closely with the kinds of things that other people in their neighborhood or community would identify with. Right. So that's kind of SRV in a nutshell. And that that's our whole organization embraces that. Mm -hmm. And and many people say to us, well, uh, gosh, so if people don't sign on to this, they can't be a part of what we do, you do. And I, yeah, I say, no, that's not it at all. We have, uh, we just ask that people come with an inquiring mind. So lots of people come thinking they're looking for a group home, thinking they're looking for a day service. Um, and that's because that's what they've seen. That's what they've been told. And with, uh, if they come with an inquiring mind, we help them to look at other things that are options. Mm. Um, and we hold the principled framework. Families will make their own decisions on whether they fit with that or not. Right. But in large numbers, families are making that decision that this really makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. In fact, they'll tell us this always made sense to them. They just didn't think they could have it. Right. right. And so yeah. we try to figure out how this could be. Yeah, I love that. And 
it you're really just asking families to be curious and open yeah. and if it were if if you think it fits for you great if yeah. not that's okay too yeah um with regards to social role valorization one of the things that you helped me understand with that theory is often individuals with a disability are looked at for their negative mm -hmm. roles so you know just uh, you know maybe a, as a cost or a, a burden on society rather than the positive roles that they hold whether it could be you know uh, an aunt or a, a sister or right. it could be a, a dog walker or a blue jays fan or um, the job that they that they hold yeah um, and really focusing on building out those positive roles and um, in in most times when we meet somebody one of the first two questions that we get asked is so what do you do janet yes right and if you hold positive roles it's easy to answer that mm -hmm. question Right. Like for me, somebody asked me that, oh, I'm a, I'm a coach and I'm a host a podcast. That's right. Right. And those for, you know, those are viewed as positive roles. So helping individuals um, with a disability to, to develop those positive roles so that they can, you know, answer that question easily yeah. Yeah. and start that conversation um, with new people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, it, I mean, that is the crux is what, of what we try to uh, teach families uh, in very, very loving ways. I think lots of family members, um, they love their son or daughter, their family, their sister or brother dearly. They just hadn't really thought of them as a contributing member. They hadn't thought of them. Uh, they, they, they love them. They want to take care of them. They love some of the qualities they see. They just don't, haven't really thought about you know, I have a job. What might their job be? Maybe a paying job is a bit of a challenge and we can figure that out or energy wise, we only figure it out part time, but they can have a job. They might take a volunteer role. They might um, have a role in their church. They might have a role um, in recreation in their community in some way. Right. And all of those are things that uh, they can then, you know, pull out and say, you know, I am the assistant coach of the peewee hockey team. Right. Meaning that they're there maybe with a brother handing out the hockey sticks and handing out the water. Uh, but that's a whole different identity than saying, yeah, I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the brother with Down syndrome. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. And, and the, the players on that team are going to look at that individual differently as yeah. well. They're going to, you know, hey, that's our assistant yeah. coach. That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about... BCR, so yep. building contacts for relationships. So um, there's a really nice framework that you've put together around that. Would you be able to walk our listeners through that at sure. kind of a high level? Okay, I can give that a try. So this is a strategy that um, <clears throat> I figured out over the years. I spent many years working with uh, families, um, hugely to a huge extent, the families of the Ohago Support Network, which is a family group in in the uh, Durham region, and. Over time, we were looking at how do we help people take on um, positive roles and identities in their lives. And uh, over time, we started paying attention to what were we doing right, which is an approach I love rather than focusing on, oh, we got it wrong again. We said, what did we do right in helping people to really take a hold of their lives and, and have roles and uh, positive identities? And um, over time, it seemed to me that this kind of pattern evolved and um so we're interested in bringing about um, relationship in people's lives. A relationship I grew to understand was very, very important to people. Uh, 
And by relationship, I mean relationship with people who don't have a disability. And those kinds of relationships, it's not that I don't value relationships among people with disabilities, but those are often already in place. And the ones we don't know as much how to create are um, relationship among people who didn't previously know each other, uh, one who has a disability and one who doesn't. And those relationships bring to the life of the person with a disability, you know, a real stretching of opportunity and trying something new and different, like all um, of our, some of our friends stretch us. And the other thing is they bring a level of safeguarding. When the chips are down, these are the people who will stand up, who will be there, who will speak up for you. And uh, parents are very, very clear about the need for this in the lives of their sons and daughters. And at the same time, that there is um, not as much, not nearly as much of that kind of relationship in their life as they wanted. So we set about the families of Diohago and I about what what we could, could we do about this. And over time, we realized that this kind of strategy made a huge difference. It helped people to create um, positive roles in their lives. And in those ro- uh, roles, the role is almost like a glue. Um, in the role, you end up meeting other people. And those people, because they see you in a positive way, end up um, uh, um, being open to a different kind of relationship um, in your life. And so what we know is um, there's a little strategy that has four pieces to it. And I call this building a, con- <clears throat> building a context for relationship. And building a context for relationship says that we can create situations where relationship is more likely to arise. And those, um, that those situations have these things in common. First of all, they follow the interests of the person. And once you are following what a person is genuinely interested in, you, um, uh, look around your community and say, where are the other people in Pickering who are interested in dogs or who are interested in ice hockey? And you look around and if you are observant and kind of do this with a group of people, you can see there's lots and lots of places. So for dogs, it might be the dog park, it might be the veterinary office, it might be um, dog training places, dog grooming places, people just... uh, uh um, walking their dogs in the neighborhood. Uh, there might be dog clubs, specialty dog clubs, um, uh, dog associations for uh, people who adopt stray dogs. You know, it goes on and on and on. And once you see what's out there and the many, many ways that people um, are interested in dogs, often the person you're thinking about, um, you start to think, hmm, I could see him over there. I could see her over there. That sounds really good. So we need to find good places in community where people share the interest. And they need to be typical, ordinary places in community, not segregated places. So we're not looking for the disabled students dog club. And we're not looking for, you know, the places that um, people might come together uh, to have a dog visit through dog therapy. Those aren't typical and ordinary. Those are, you know, where people go um, when they have uh, an identity of disability. So where are the places in community? Um, uh, and I like to say, where are they one person at a time? We're just involving one person with a disability and other typical ordinary people in the community. The next thing we have to do, so that's the first thing that we need to build in the situation, finding ordinary places in community where people share that interest. The second thing was we need to find and choose places in community where people can go on a frequent and regular basis. In order to build relationship, you have to be among the same people again and again and again. And often, 
with the one-to-one support available to people, we see people kind of um, flitting around their communities, one day doing this, another day doing that, another doing, day doing something completely different. They're often being entertained by their supporters rather than supported to enter into relationship. And so we ask people to just, you know, like pick one place. So if you're interested in dogs, you might pick... Um, the dog park, and you might go there on a really regular basis, hopefully with a dog, you know, um, and get to know some of the people there and start, you know, talking about your dogs, walking your dogs. You might uh, join uh, one of the dog breed clubs around, you know, maybe there is a, um, a club for um, Labrador retrievers. And I know there's a rescue uh, Labrador retriever. Not everyone even has a dog, but they have roles where they help that club to um, advertise, um, look for other people who want to adopt lab retrievers. They might babysit them for a while, those kinds of things. Um, so you want places where people can go on a frequent basis where they're encountering the same people again and again. And that's a better basis for relationship than just sporadically being around the community. Um, thirdly, you want people to have a role in those places and community. So often people are just spectators, they're just um, observers. And I get people to think about things like a local music festival. And um, so often if people with disabilities go to the music festival, they're simply spectators. But if you look around a music festival, there are often 100, 150 other roles that people are taking on, volunteer roles, where they are in uh, engaged in the festival in a much, much deeper way. So they could be... Um, giving out programs at the gate. They could be, uh, you know, moving the cords around for the musicians. They could be uh, the one I go to. Someone drives the golf cart with the important musicians in the back. Well, you could be an assistant to the golf cart driver, right? You could be handing out free samples. You could be filling water bottles. There's hundreds of roles. And by helping people take a more uh, a deeper, more identifiable, purposeful role, um, um, the person has a different identity and people can get to know them. That group of volunteers at a music festival often gets together before the festival begins. They get some training. Uh, they do the festival together. And afterwards, there's usually an after party. And all of those things you can imagine make relationship easier to come uh, to than just doing uh, uh, attending the music festival and going home at the end of the day. And you got a T-shirt that shows that you're part, part of that. Right. You you own that role. Yeah, yeah. And so in the strategy I talk about this strategy brings about roles, relationships, and places of belonging. And there's nothing like a volunteer T-shirt to say I belong in a deep and important way. Right. right. And then the, the last thing. Um, in this strategy, so we've got finding good places in community where other people share your interests. We've got uh, being there on a frequent and regular basis. We've got holding a role that usually makes some kind of a contribution. And then we've got that other people have to be present. And um, that is one we forget about all too often. So every time that someone is in a one-to-one situation and they're not inviting a third person into a conversation... You know, the only relationship that's being worked on is with the paid support person. And that isn't a true friendship. And that was probably a relationship that will probably end. So it's a huge investment of time and money and energy into a relationship that isn't going to bridge you into the rest of community. 
So we need to really help support people to understand that they aren't the friend, but they are the bridge to friendships and relationships for that person. And for the time being, that's an even more important role than a temporary friendship. Right. So we do lots of talking with supporters about their role of being a bridge rather than being a relationship itself. And we have so many examples of this where um, I know someone that went off to a community garden and there are lots of people gardening there in the community garden. And after several weeks, we said, how how is the relationship? How are the people going? Are they friendly? And they said, yes, although we're we're on this other um, corner over there and we kind of have our own plot. and We don't talk much to other people. Right. And so you've got a beautiful context for a relationship. You've got the, a shared interest, a place in community. You go on a frequent and regular basis and you're a gardener just like everyone else. But the people aren't really present. They're on the other side and you're together with your support worker. Right. right? And so we, we help people to kind of take their blinders off around these situations. And by having this little four part strategy, uh, people are able to look at the situation they've crafted and say, did I leave anything out? Have I left anything behind? And by putting that in place, um, you have a powerful opportunity over time uh, for people uh, to feel like they're contributing through the role. And then through that, they end up having degrees of from casual to ever deepening relationship. Mm-hmm. And what I want to iterate for the listeners of the podcast is that this strategy or this framework has been deconstructed from what has worked. Yes. Thank you. Yes. So that's a really important point. Mm-hmm. There's, um, you know, this is from observing what has worked mm-hmm. and this is why. Yes. So I'm curious, Janet, do you have um, a story of maybe an individual or two where what they were doing, what wasn't really working and that individual wasn't very happy with that and how they've used this strategy to um, live an ordinary life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's a strategy can be used to um, take something that's mediocre and make it more powerful or create something new altogether. So uh, there's lots of different examples, but I can just give you, um, you know, simply uh, a young man named Jonathan who has a small shredding business. And he's a, um, a guy that um, takes his shredding business into uh, various places of work um, because he likes a lot of variety. He likes to shred paper, does a lot of it manually. Um, and at one point we had him kind of uh, going to the local police station and he worked in a police station with um, just two other um, police in a very small police station. So he really, really enjoyed that, had a great relationship with the two guys um, who worked there. Um, they greeted him. He kind of waved when he was there. He felt important. He felt like he belonged. Um, and that police station closed down, as so many good local things do. Um, but they really, really um, appreciated his work. And so they invited him to come to the great big uh, Durham uh, police station uh, to continue to do some shredding for the police. And, and he and we were delighted to accept that contract. And he went on in. And after about five or six weeks, he didn't want to go anymore. And we were saying, oh, my goodness, this was so positive. What has happened? And when we went, when I went to have a look to see, you know, what might have gone wrong, what we could do differently, what I noticed was, in fact, because it's a big um, busy police station. We thought that would be really good for him, even more people to have contact with. But because it was so busy, they had put him into a back room in order to do his shredding undisturbed. Mm. And what they had in fact done is taken that little 
BCR situation and pulled the people right out of it, right? And so simply he was going to a back room and he was productive and he had a role, but he had no people. There was no um, connection for him. And he, in, you know, intuitively knew that this um, shredding business, this role at the police station was simply a vehicle for relationship. And when we took the people, the possibility of relationship out of, out of it for him unwittingly, but that's what we did. He was no longer interested in the work. Mm. And it was really easy to talk to some of the, um, uh, organizers at the police station and find another place where he wasn't in the middle of things, but off to the side in an office with two or three other people again, uh, where he was quite happy to be working again. Right. right? And so we used the strategy to say, well, we know it's a good place and community and he loves shredding and he's there frequently and regularly and he has a good role. You know, but where are the people, right? Mm-hmm. So that was a way of using uh, the strategy to, yeah, to to solidify that. And the other way is just if you start with somebody's interest, you know. So um, I'm thinking of uh, John, different guy, <laughs> John, who was really interested in in hockey, and um, he was, uh, you know. Um, a strong athletic kind of guy. And we thought, well, he could play hockey. He could watch hockey. He could be involved with hockey, but he was also of a working age. Um, and we thought, well, maybe he'd like to be employed in the world of hockey. And sure enough, he was a little bit interested in that. And we helped him to get a job at the Pickering Rec Center. And uh, so he worked at, uh, he now has two jobs in two ice hockey arenas. And uh, so that was just following his interest and understanding that if he's interested in that, probably working around other people who are quite interested in, you know, doing maintenance in a hockey uh, kind of uh, venue. And uh, he has a great imagination. And we know that he's there, you know, cleaning the floors or arranging the bleachers and doing the things he needs to do, thinking of the games that he's been to, the games he's going to go to. And, uh, you know, at break time, chatting with the guys about statistics and whatnot. Um, so that was just following his interests and creating a work role in community that fits all of the criteria of uh, building a context. And again, for that one, the work we had to do was to make sure it wasn't just a job, but it had connections that were relational, that the relationship. So we continue to support him until he had a really, really good bond. It turned out to be with his supervisor, who would link him to the other guys, who would take him off and do different things at break while they had a coffee together. And uh, we knew it was the relationships that would keep him at work, the interests that would bring him there, the relationships that would keep him there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been doing that for quite a few years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what I'm pulling um, out of this, Janet, is there's typically some support that's involved yes. with um, mm. helping to, like as you said, bridge those yeah. relationships. And what I think I'm getting is it's that the person that's providing that support and bridging, it's their job to work themselves out of a job. Yeah, it is. Um, and if anything, it always takes, because we've added in, the bridging to relationship, not just helping someone know their job and be able to do their job. We've added in, you know, part of your roles to bridge to relationship. We pull people out probably a little slower than I thought we would. It takes just a little longer. And in work terms, we often say we don't pull out until someone has a champion at work who wants them to succeed. Right. Um, and so we make sure that happens. In all of the other um, situations, it's really 
Um, it's an art, the art of fading. I think about one woman I was helping um, in this ongoing decoupage uh, class, uh, an arts and crafts class. And when she became quite comfortable with the woman next to her, um, I felt that I was in the way. I, my presence was a barrier. And yet the woman next to her wasn't quite confident enough. And the woman I was supporting, you know, still had an eye to meet in order to feel uh, confident. So I started doing things like uh, taking uh, a bathroom break. And when they were okay, you know, I might take another one. People must have thought I had a bladder infection at one point. <laughs> or I'd forget something at the car and pick it up at the car. And if they were doing okay when I came in the door, I'd fuss around and tie my shoe. It'd take another two minutes till I came in. So how could I build the confidence of these two people to, to be together all the way to the point where at one point I said to the woman, you know what, I can't, I can, I can drop her off next week, but I can't be here to pick her up. Could you drive her? Would you drop her at home? Right. And so that's the art of how do you uh, build the confidence in both parties right. um, and not become the person who has to be there. Right. Yeah. And I see the connection uh, between what you're talking about and uh, a conversation I had with Al Condalusi mm-hmm. with social capital. Mm-hmm. And he called this stage in his framework, the uh, finding the gatekeeper. Yeah. So finding that individual in the environment that's not paid support mm-hmm. Um to, to build that relationship yeah. with. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So for our listeners that this is kind of their, their first exposure to, to this type of uh, model or thinking, um, the question that a lot of them would probably have is, okay, where do I start? <laughs> so um, we talked about developing uh, a positive role yeah. and that role should be based on an interest. Yeah. So starting with the interest. So how do... Maybe what are some kind of starting points or starting questions um, to kind of kickstart the process for some Mm -hmm. families? Mm -hmm. Um, First of all, I think it's learning to identify what the interests are. And so often people will say, oh, I didn't. I didn't think about that. So really starting to observe and share with each other. Uh, And some people, uh, it's an interest in an environment rather than a thing. Some people just really, really like to be outdoors. And you just start with that, you know, where are the people in Pickering who like to be outdoors, right? Right. Um, And then the second thing is when you're identifying interest and identifying where are the other people who share this interest is not to say, but my son can't do this, but I, he can't be there. He can't, um, function there. So you're not really, to judge the, yeah. the interest or the idea. That's right. And not to judge your brainstorming. You're saying, what are all the places? Because it's really when you've got five, 10, 15 places to choose from, you end up getting a sense of, well, he could be here for short periods of time and with support. Or he could be here and he actually, he could make this contribution. I was just talking to someone about a little boy this summer who is going to um he's a a large boy for a little kid and he's hopefully going to a local drop-in um at the playground and he's about 10 years old and so the the drop-in is quite quite appropriate he's going to meet other kids he's not going to be able to jump up and get on the swings and the slide and whatnot and that you know uh, there may be future ways to make that happen it's not going to happen this summer and so we were thinking about gosh he wants to be with other kids he loves to be in the playground he loves to observe how could we help you know uh him get more actively involved and then we started to think about what could he bring into the park 
that would have the kids come to him. Mm-hmm. You know, what snacks could he bring in? What uh, little collections? Like, what are kids collecting right now? Those little uh, finger things that you flip around. Can he bring in a collection of those? Uh, in my day, it would have been Pokemon cards or something like <laughs> that. Or, or is there an art and cr- a craft that he could do, like uh, painting rocks or something like that? And he brings an array of rocks, rocks and some paints that will have the kids flock to him, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, we we just really need to kind of think about. Um, let's just think of the places first, and then we can work about how this person might be involved. So you don't want to say he can't go there because he can't get on the swings. Right. You know, yeah. it, and so we've done this exercise with my sister. Oh, yes. And uh, how also did that with, go? within a <laughs> circle. Yeah. And we're talking about all the way, all the, the times that Sarah really lights up. Mm-hmm. And That's a good way. it was very obvious to everybody that um, it was it was a place that yeah. every single time <laughs> yeah. she gets lit up. And it's interesting enough, Starbucks. Oh. So we started to dive into, okay, what mm-hmm. is it about um, Starbucks. So she loves like learning about the, you know, products that they have. And she loves learning about the promotions that they have. Um, She loves being in the environment and she's a super social person. Mm -hmm. So we started thinking, okay, so how, you know, what are our possible roles that could, could exist within, within Starbucks where she can um, be in that environment. It gives her the context to start to build relationships. Mm -hmm. So, that's kind of where we are with it okay. right now, and we're starting to move forward with it. But, yeah, great. Um, that's an example of a place. Yes, absolutely. Right? Where, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that, um, as you were speaking there about the story with um, the 10-year-old boy going to the playground, from a lot of families that I've spoke to, often there's there's quite a bit of support while the kids are in school. Yeah. So an individual with disability, you know, under 21 in school, quite a bit of support, but it doesn't mean that you can't start to think in this way at whatever age. Absolutely. Right. So that was something that kind of just clicked for me that I Mm -hmm. thought was important to to bring out. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, it's really worthwhile if you're in a school and it's a half decent school and you've got a good teacher or principal to work with, you might think about what are all of the things that a grade two student might be involved in? What are the clubs? What are the little chores and responsibilities bringing the uh, the attendance sheet down to the office, um, helping design the bulletin board clean. You know, how do we make sure that your grade two student also has those opportunities? How do they get to be a full grade two student? How do they get to make a contribution, right? right. So that's really important. And then I really have worked, I love this, at, at when, when kids are 16, 17, and certainly when they're, uh, by the time they're 19, 20, I really encourage at 19 and 20 uh, parents to be thinking about taking first a half a day and then a full day out of the school week to help people take a role in their community. And this greatly helps the transition into adult life when school suddenly ends. That sudden ending is so hard on the people themselves and certainly on their families. And so why not transition? Why don't we take the year before and say, you know, on Fridays, uh, this, this young woman is totally interested in Starbucks and barista skills and everything. Let's help her explore that and maybe come up with a, a promotional role around Starbucks that takes place that she has to go in and get the materials and decide on the route she's going to take on a Friday morning and is helped with paid support to go and do that. And then by noon, 
if, you know, um, maybe by noon she has lunch with one of the Starbucks workers and then by afternoon she's back to school. Right. And when that's really, really well and good, chances are she's not going to want to go back to school. So you fill in the afternoon with a different role. Right. And you give everyone a chance that, oh, actually, this isn't so difficult. She's not going to need a day program when she graduates from high school. What she's going to need is a life. And a part of that life might be being an assistant barista or a promotional person for Starbucks. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, you know, and we have people doing that all of the time, often through our family series, right? And they uh, begin just with a half day and then they gravitate to a day. And by the time they're doing two days, you know, and you've got to find the right support people and you have to do it over time. It may not be fast, but it's deeply satisfying Mm -hmm. and it gets you on the path, you know. Uh, And so sometimes people think, oh, you know, uh, they feel judged because their son or daughter is in a day program. And they say, oh, you know, you're not going to like what I'm doing at all. And I'm saying I have no judgment on how you need to kind of uh, make uh, put things in place to make your family work. I'm saying, you know, for the sake of your son or daughter, here's something fun. Do you want to give this a try? And so again, people are open and curious. And through our series, we've had a number of people now begin to take a half day, a full day, two days, and then no day program at all. You know, they've got their passports funding. They might have some other bits of funding and they put it together and they find out that actually their son or daughter might not need five hours a day of school time support, but they could be dropped off at lunchtime, have an hour at home for lunch or after lunch on their own before something in the afternoon starts. They mm-hmm. might not need, you know, that full funding that they thought they did. Yeah. So yeah, it's all times to try it out when you've got um, some familiarity in place and trying something different. Right. It makes sense. And mm-hmm. going back to the, the school example, taking a day or two days yeah. or half a day, whatever yeah. that is, to start to explore uh, interest and, and build a role, that's pretty ordinary. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> people and kids uh, yeah. that don't have a disability. Yeah do that type of Absolutely. Thing. And I, I've known not too many, but a few co-op teachers that are also prepared to help students at 19 and 20 take on a co-op job that isn't tied to the school. So perhaps the families have found the job, the, the, the school might, um, you know, make sure it's okay for them, put the support in place during school. And when school ends, the family takes over the support for that job. But what it means is that that person has continuity from school time to um, adult life. They don't have to lose everything all at once. Yeah. So, yeah. So I hope that that gives uh, the listeners some ideas to, uh, to try out the, the, this model um, and to, and to get started with it. If that's something of, of interest, if uh, you know, as they've been listening and they're curious about it. So one of the, um, workshops or groups that you mentioned earlier that I'd love just to explore a little bit was around biomedical. <laughs> okay. So can, yeah. can you just tell us a little uh, bit more about that? So um, we felt that families might want to, and they have told us they, they are very interested in coming together and thinking about um, their sons and daughters in terms of supporting them to have the best life possible using non uh, medicinal, non-medical, um, and non-behavior management interventions. That it's not that those things are never on the table, but maybe they would 
be better serving for the individual if other things were taken care of first. So what we do is we kind of try to look at the whole person and we've done uh, lots of studying. Uh, so we have a book list that we follow that we've developed and we bring in uh, people to talk to us from time to time. And we, we're just studying, we're learning together. So one of the things we've learned about is the impact of diet, particularly it seems to be uh, for people who have autism, but not solely. There's lots of other people, people with epilepsy have have benefited. And so families are at different stages of trying dietary uh, kinds of approaches. And um, so families who have tried it will talk to other families and say, you know, when I took gluten out of the diet, when I took dairy out of the diet, you wouldn't believe the difference in A, B, or C. So people are really interested in that. So we had a naturopath and a nutritionist come in and talk about how to do that, how to do that safely. We had some reading around that. So once people's digestive systems are in better order, then we can also look at um, sensory integration things. So we've had a couple of families who have had really good experiences with occupational therapists with um, a specialty in uh, sensory integration and uh, really helping uh, people to understand that link between anxiety and hypersensitivity to surroundings that don't match for them. And it could be uh, people that are understimulated in some ways or overstimulated. And so um, and Peter Marx will talk about this a lot. These ideas were probably introduced to us. Uh, we were open to them, but Peter was um, influential in, in saying, you know, really pay attention to this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so that would be the other piece is the, um, the sensory integration. And so people are kind of buying those cheap little, um, trampolines and they're kind of experimenting with heavy blankets and really learning, um, what it is to, to, um, help people calm down and, and focus in. Um, we've dealt with kind of mindfulness and how do we bring mindfulness ideas and practice to our sons and daughters with disability. And that mindfulness practitioner we're using in our project has come and helped us be thoughtful about that. Uh, and we've had other parents come in. Um, people are very, very interested in medical marijuana and what's that doing for people with epilepsy for people, you know, and a number of families have some licenses and are experimenting a little bit under the supervision of doctors. And uh, other families are really eager to get that information. So we come together and say, what is it that we know? Um, And so once people's digestive systems are in order, we do a better job at kind of managing their kind of sensory diet needs. Um, We understand about the importance of mindfulness not just for the person with a disability, but the people around them need to be calm and in the moment when they're supporting. You know, when we get that all in order, maybe there still is need for a little bit of medication. Maybe there still is need for um, some behavioral approaches. And the only reason I say that is sometimes it helps all of the support people be on the same page. So it's not for the person with a disability, but it's for the team, right? Right. Um, And so they're much smaller amounts and they don't kind of dominate the person's life. So I'm not saying never to those things, but maybe there's more important things uh, for us to address first. Right. So it's a group that talks about those things, learns together, reads together. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. It, it makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. right? We're learning a lot about, you know, uh, humans and, you know, uh, if you follow someone like uh, Tim Ferriss, for example, yeah. example talks about like optimal performance, mm-hmm. um, you know, things that he talks about are nutrition, exercise, mindfulness. Yeah. 
Um, so why wouldn't we think about all those same things applying to an individual with disability? They're, yeah. they're, <laughs> yeah. they're still people. So think about it in the, in the same. And, same um, way. a lot of what we're reading and Peter was helpful for us to understand this, that, um, you know, many, uh, people that we're supporting who have autism, epilepsy, um, and other kinds of, uh, conditions um, are the sons and daughters of parents who have lots of allergies, lots of sensitivity to the environment. And so what our reading has show, shown us is if a baby is born just a little bit more sensitive because their parent sensitivities and the in-womb sensitivities, and they're born in a world that is more polluted than it ever was. And they're given vaccines, not that vaccines are, you know, the, the, the silver bullet problem, but if a hypersensitive baby reacting to its environment is given, uh, what I heard from 1992 on, twice the amount of, um, vaccination material uh, than babies prior to that. You know, some of these children might just react in really, really significant ways. And one of the reactions might be, you know, this this hypersensitivity and also digestive systems that don't work. Mm-hmm. So if you get kids and then young people who are constantly in distress and pain and not quite at their best self and their mind is fuzzy, and then you're applying behavior management strategies or discipline strategies and you want them to calm down and the whole <laughs> right and you're <laughs> you adding know? in medication or drugs you're yeah. adding to that whole cocktail uh, of absolutely going on. so can we calm things down can we start at a biological end which makes really a lot of sense to me and there's ways of saying we, we tried this and that wasn't the issue so we're going back to typical eating or whatever but there's ways to give it an honest honest go we talk a lot about how do you convince your kids to do that mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what are the what are the tricks and reasons and ways? Um, but increasingly, we also have parents that say, with sons and daughters with significant disabilities, that are saying, "I said to my son, when you eat this, you get sick, so we're not going to eat it." That there is increasing. You repeat that and go through it. Um, people understand things um, when it's offered by people that they trust mm-hmm. in genuine relationship. Mm-hmm. Or you know, as a coach, yeah, what comes to mind for me is. How do you feel after you eat this? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And getting that out of the individual That's rather right. than telling them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, there's a place for both. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, for for someone listening to this, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm interested in yeah. in, take, in in take exploring this more. Yeah. One thing that comes to mind is chatting with a naturopath. Yeah. Is that? Yeah. And, and obviously there's, you know, you've got the, the group that that's exploring this. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on how f- a family could um, start to look at this type of an approach? Yeah. Um, so Peter Marks on his website will have some ideas on this as well. And uh, certainly there are natural paths, although they're not all equal. So you have to really kind of mm-hmm. uh, really, you need to have ones that have um, experience in some aut- autism and developmental disability. So they, they should automatically know that there are kind of things that they need to look into. Um, if Peter Marks is doing any of his workshops in various parts of the problem, province, people should just leap onto those. Mm-hmm. Again, we tend to have him out this way about once a year. And if uh, people see him on, you know, our newsletter, they're, they're quite free to sign up. Um, our biomedical group 
there's a group that physically meets, but there's a larger group that uh, reads and shares some of the information. So if people have an interest, I can share our book list, for example, and some of the other stuff that we kind of look about. I mean, I think the value really is in the conversation, but if people... Um, I think we've got a, a pretty responsible list of books is what I'm saying is it's not hugely radical. It's really kind of measured and it's not going to put people in danger, right. um, but it's highly effective for great, great things to think through. Okay, great. We'll include that list kind okay. of, uh, with the show notes so people can yep. access that. That'd be great. So that's our show for today. And a big thank you going out to Janet Cleese and very grateful for Janet to share uh, her lessons and uh, the insights that she has deconstructed over the years from her experience uh, with fam working with families with disabilities. And I hope this gives you some ideas and a starting place or even just helps you think a little bit differently uh, about the opportunities available for people with disabilities. Uh, it could be your son or your daughter or someone that you support, or your brother or sister or even yourself. I hope that you think about using the four-step or four-stage model uh, with BCR, building context for relationships that Janet uh, explained for us. She also gave us a good starting point. So we can uh, we can get off the starting blocks with this. And I've included lots of links in, and resources uh, in the show notes of this podcast and also in the blog. So if you're looking to reference more material, uh, you can definitely check out the show notes or the blog uh, as well. Uh, I've also linked to some more information on the biomedical uh, stuff that Janet and I talked about and Peter Mark's uh, website, uh, Conscious Care. So I'll go ahead and check those things out. Also, if you want to hear more about the stories of uh, people that have used uh, this model uh, around building context for relationships, uh, I recommend that you check out some of Janet's books. So there's three uh, books that I recommend. Uh, we Come Bearing Gifts is the title of the first one. The second one, Our Presence Has Roots. And the third one, Diohago Decades. So uh, Janet shares lots of rich stories about uh, folks uh, of lives that she's been involved with. And she's um, definitely employed or, or helped to teach this model to, to these individuals and these families to help them build the life that they want to build and many natural relationships. So go ahead and check those out. Uh, I've linked to those as well. And if housing is something that you're working on, uh, feel free to go to the website and get the free download on creating your home. So there's this great workbook that's going to help guide you through creating your vision and starting to implement your vision for what your home looks like. So go on over to the website. It's empoweringability.org. And I think you'll get a lot of value out of that. I'd like to thank all of our listeners that have left us a review on iTunes. Your reviews help me understand what I'm doing well, what I can improve on on the podcast, what you want to hear. So it's great feedback that you're providing. So please continue to do so. Also, by leaving a five-star review, it helps other people find the podcast. So thanks so much for those reviews and keep them coming. And next week on the podcast, we have Jeff Dobbin, Executive Director of Partners for Planning in Toronto. And Partners for Planning is an awesome resource for uh, families, individuals, and supporters looking for information around building a good full life in community. And uh, they host 
many, many resources, uh, one of the main ones being uh, about 40 webinars per year that are, avail- are available to everybody. So Jeff and I talk about the resources that are available through P4P in the online platform. Jeff also shares some of the building blocks uh, that they recommend that families think about for uh, creating a full life for the family and for uh, the individual with a disability. Some great uh, insights there from, from Jeff, and we explain the resource and and how you can use it and how you can benefit. So great conversation with Jeff next week. Looking forward to sharing that with you. And as always, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability build a full and meaningful life.